in February of this year, 2013, I was invited to be a speaker at a Bible conference held by Church of the Redeemer in Mesa, Arizona. The topic for the weekend was titled, Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise. During that conference, I gave a series of four lectures. There was far more material than I could ever deal with in just four lectures. Since then, I've expanded those initial four messages into about 15 or 16 messages of which you're listening to one of these. I encourage those who are listening to these messages to visit my publishing website, which is at triumphantpublications.com, and read for free a written version based on all of these messages. These messages are also being compiled into a published book titled Theistic Evolution and Sinful Compromise, scheduled for, re- for release sometime in mid-June of this year, 2013. My website will guide you on how to purchase a hard copy when available. If you don't want to purchase a hard version, you can read the transcript of the book by simply going to my website and clicking on the appropriate box titled Theistic Evolution and Sinful Compromise Transcript. Also on my publishing website, I've listed links to all the audio messages found on sermonaudio.com under the general topic, Theistic Evolution, A Simple Compromise. May the Lord bless you as you listen and or read about this very dangerous view that is gaining ground, unfortunately, among certain churches and institutions. As I bring this lecture series to a conclusion, let me just summarize why Theistic Evolution is a sinful compromise. The lecture series, as I've indicated, was titled Theistic Evolution, a Sinful Compromise. I fully admit to say, a sinful compromise. Does this mean that I think any person who holds to this view is an unbeliever? Not necessarily. Do I believe that they have seriously compromised the faith? Yes, I do. Do I believe that those who endorse some form of theistic evolution should be officers uh, in the church and professors in colleges or seminaries? No, I don't. As I mentioned in one of my lectures, I was once an agnostic and an evolutionist when I was in high school. Though not a very informed evolutionist, I was a conscious unbeliever. It was God's sovereign grace that saved me when I was a freshman in college. Upon my conversion to Christ, no one had to inform me that there was a problem with maintaining evolutionary views with my Christian faith. I immediately sensed this, even though I was severely biblically illiterate. I did not grow up in a church. I never read a Bible. I didn't even understand what chapter and verse in the Bible meant. However, when the power of the Holy Spirit regenerated my deadened soul, and as the Spirit illumined my mind with biblical truth, as I faithfully read my Bible, I knew that there was no reconciling of evolution with the Bible's account of creation. Today I understand this to be the anointing of the Holy Spirit that 1 John 2, 20, 26-27 alludes to, where no one needs to be my teacher in this respect. My problem was that I was a biology major in a pre-med curriculum. I was constantly being bombarded with evolutionary thinking, and I did not have answers that fully satisfied some intellectual doubts I was having about the Bible as it pertained to evolution. At the same time, I knew in my heart that evolution was a lie of Satan. It all came to a head one day when I was a sophomore. The one place that I learned about the errors of evolution 
was via the Plain Truth magazine, a publication of the Worldwide Church of God, which happens to be, or was, a cultic organization. But I didn't know better. Once I was helped to see that this group was unbiblical, it did create a significant crisis in my life. I wasn't even sure I was a Christian, although I think, as I think back, I really do believe I was genuinely converted. I was having all of these doubts. I was still wondering how to oppose evolution despite what my biology college education was teaching me. One night I was convicted of my sin for doubting God, for having essentially autonomous thoughts as to what constitutes truth. I was convicted that I had no right to question the authority of God's word. I literally fell on my knees in tears crying out to God to forgive me of my doubtful thoughts. I will never forget saying to the Lord, Lord, I will never again question your word. I still don't know what to think about certain things, but that is okay. If you want to reveal knowledge to me, that's fine. If not, that's fine too. But I will cling to the authority of your word because it is your word. Here I was applying a presuppositional apologetic to my life, and at the time I knew of no such thing as presuppositional apologetics. That was a life-changing event, and it was the beginning of my growth in the Christian life in many respects. As several years passed, the Lord enabled me to begin to see that there was a rational defense of the faith against evolution. I began to see the errors of evolutionary thinking. I liken those who embrace various forms of evolutionary thinking to much like the naive persons who are in the Masonic Lodge. Several years back, I wrote a book titled Unveiling Freemasonry's Idolatry. In fact, in the late 1980s, I was the one who initiated in the PCA to study the issue of Freemasonry when I was still a teaching elder in that denomination. The PCA General Assembly did adopt a position that men could be subject to church discipline if they refused to demit from the lodge once they had been sufficiently educated of its idolatry. I believe that there are various degrees of culpability when it comes to embracing evolutionary views. Some people have never been enlightened to the problems with this ungodly philosophy of life. Others are more culpable because they have been illumined to its errors and still refuse to see problems with it. Again, I must stress the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's role, as Jesus said in John 16:13, is to guide us into all truth. And John 17:17 17, 17 says that thy word is truth. If man is adamantly refusing to distance himself from evolutionary views, I ask myself, why isn't the Spirit convicting him? So, why is theistic evolution a sinful compromise? Allow me to enumerate the major reasons. One, it robs God of his due glory. Isaiah 48.11 says that God will not share his glory with another. God is the creator. He made the universe through his omnipotent power. He commanded and all things came to pass instantaneously. This is the plain reading of the creation account. For the BioLogos Foundation to call its theistic evolutionary workshops a celebration of praise is insulting to our Lord. The Lord is ever present in his creation through his works of providence. The scripture doesn't allude to God giving nature some latent power to bring about life. Two, it elevates science as an equal authority with 
scripture. Theistic evolutionists regularly deny this accusation, but that doesn't mean that it still doesn't apply to them. The scripture, as the Westminster Confession of Faith states, is the sole authority for faith and practice. While science properly applied can corroborate things in Scripture, it can never be a guide to how we should interpret Scripture. Theistic evolutionists regularly appeal to scientific discoveries that must be seriously considered, and if necessary, we must make revisions of our interpretations of Scripture to fit into these discoveries. Third, it adopts a faulty hermeneutic. Theistic evolutionists are regularly insisting that we cannot apply a literalism to the early chapters of Genesis. Now, I'm fully aware of and do understand the use of figurative language in understanding portions of God's Word, especially in understanding the wisdom literature. However, the crux of the issue is whether we should understand the early chapters of Genesis as historical narrative or as some kind of storytelling where the plain meaning of the words employed don't matter. But what matters is the supposed intention or worldview of the biblical writer. As I argued in one lecture, plenary verbal inspiration does champion an understanding of, quote, actual words of Scripture. God inspired his agents, prophets and apostles, via words. The meaning of words in context constitutes the very essence of human language. Biblical words convey the meaning God intended. The biblical author's worldview is governed by the use of the words that God inspired him to write. As Ashpole Green said with regard to denying the days of creation as anything other than ordinary solar days, he said, but all such ideas, however learned or ingeniously advocated, I cannot but regard as fanciful in the extreme, and what is worse, as introducing such a method of treating the plain language of Scripture as is calculated to destroy all confidence in the volume of inspiration. End of quote. As the Westminster Confession states, the infallible rule of interpretation is the Scripture itself. In applying this principle, the plain reading of the text with the actual words of the text should normally, normally be taken at face value unless there's definite reasons to understand otherwise. This is why the word dust in Genesis 2-7 should be viewed as ordinary dust. The notion that dust means an evolutionary process that God used or allowed to take place to make man is a violent misuse of the text. But theistic evolutionists in Genesis 1-3 frequently engage in such twisting of the text. Or it assaults the uniqueness and dignity of man. One theistic evolutionist that I dealt with in my lectures even said that we need to get over this exalted sense of dignity in thinking that God specially created us independent of the evolutionary process. The scripture emphatically states in 1 Corinthians 15:39 that there is one kind of flesh of men and another kind of flesh of animals. Man does not have an animal ancestry that God somehow refurbished to make into his image. Man is distinct, who is to have dominion over all the creatures. Psalm 8 
affirms that God made him a little lower than himself. Having an animal ancestry is hardly a proper interpretation of being made a little lower than God. Fifth, why is uh, theistic evolution a sinful compromise? It's because it is insulting to Jesus' true humanity. We must remember that Jesus is the God-man. He is fully divine and human in the same person. When the eternal Son was incarnated, taking to himself man's true humanity via his earthly mother, Mary, this does not mean that he took upon himself human nature that is rooted in some hominid ancestor that evolved from lower life forms. As Adam and Eve were special, being made in God's image, so is the humanity of Jesus Christ special in the sense that he took to himself a humanness made in God's image, a refurbished ape creature as his own ancestry, is not honoring to our Savior. 6. Why is theistic evolution a sinful compromise? Because it can undermine the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus. Now, not all theistic evolutionists deny the existence of a real historical Adam. An actual denial, though, of the historicity of Adam does constitute a denial of the gospel because Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 clearly show that Jesus Christ is the last Adam, who is a life-giving spirit. We must have a real historical Adam for Christ to function as man's true mediator. The first man is the representative head of the human race. Sin did originate with his one act of disobedience in eating of the forbidden fruit from a real tree of knowledge of good and evil. We have all sinned in Adam, and we all shall perish in Adam unless we are redeemed by Christ. The Son of God's incarnation as a real human being was for the express purpose of living a perfect life to God's law in order for that perfect righteousness to be credited to us because without it we cannot be saved. Also, without Christ dying on the cross for our transgressions of God's law, there is no forgiveness of sin. Hence, the first Adam must be a real man so that the last Adam, Jesus, as a real man, can undo the curse procured by Adam. Any theistic Evolutionist that outright denies the historicity of Adam or denies that we have inherited a sin nature from Adam has corrupted the gospel. The gospel is for sinners. And if we have not inherited a sin nature, why do we need a Savior? Virtually all theistic evolutionists contend that there was pain, suffering, and death before Adam's fall into sin. Assuming that this theistic evolutionist believes in an historical Adam. The great emphasis of 1 Corinthians 15 is that Jesus Christ, as the last Adam, brings life to all in union with him, while all in union with Adam both physically and spiritually die. 1 Corinthians 15.26 states that the last enemy to be abolished is death. In no way does Scripture allude to the fact that death has been some normal process for millions of years. 1 Corinthians 15, 54-57 pictures the sting of death being removed by Christ at His glorious second coming. 
which is also the day of victorious resurrection for believers. Death was not normal. It is the great enemy. However, theistic evolutionist Peter Enns thinks it's a myth to view death as the great enemy. Seven. Why is theistic evolution a sinful compromise? It's because it undermines the Bible's credibility. One of the greatest dangers of theistic evolution is that it undermines the Bible's credibility. If the newest scientific discoveries must be used to properly interpret the Bible, then what most Christians thought about creation must be revised. For example, the days of creation are not really days, but millions of years, supposedly. The sequence of the formation of animals can't be what the Bible says with birds being created before insects, because insects supposedly evolved first. Man cannot have been made from actual dust because man evolved from lower life forms. So dust isn't really dust. Woman cannot have been made from an actual rib of man because females evolved with males. The flood never really did cover the whole earth because geology tells us that this is impossible. Men cannot have really lived for 900 years because this is impossible. It must have rained on earth prior to the flood because how could life forms have evolved without rain on the earth? If evolution is true, then the survival of the fittest demands that I should do whatever is necessary for my own benefit. Therefore, why should I think the Bible is correct when it calls me to deny myself? If sexual freedom is a means that a better gene pool is formed for the continuation of the human race, why should I be so concerned to abstain from carrying out my sexual desires? If Adam wasn't necessarily a real person, then what assurance do I have that Jesus rose from the dead? If the gospel isn't really dependent upon a historical Adam, then why is my salvation dependent upon a real resurrection? I know of some professing Christians who don't think I have to believe in a real resurrection, so why shouldn't I think that all that matters is the notion of a spiritual resurrection of sorts? I could go on and on with examples of questioning the credibility of what the Bible says. I could go on and on with examples of questioning the credibility of what the Bible says, if the words of the Bible can actually mean all kinds of things. Why should I trust the Bible more than science, if science is necessary to give me the right understanding of the Bible? Theistic evolutionist Greg Davidson argued that those of us who believe in a young earth creation, based on an interpretation of the Bible, are actually hindrances to helping lead people to Christ because we are championing what he calls bad science. The reality is, Satan is a real diabolical being who tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden to question the credibility of what God verbally told Adam and Eve. Satan's great deceptive lie is, has God really said? I am thoroughly convinced that evolution is one of the greatest tools of the devil to deceive men. Satan wants us to think that we are nothing more than highly evolved animals. If we are really animals, then we really aren't that special after all. Is it any conclusion, is it any coincidence that the acceptance of evolutionary thinking 
has brought such great misery upon the human race. Darwin's geology teacher, Adam Sedgwick, who did not advocate a uniformitarian view of geology, wrote Darwin complaining about what his theory would eventually bring to mankind, untold misery that would be unparalleled in all of human history. Sedgwick was right. Eugenics champions evolutionary thought. Even a former professor at a supposed conservative seminary has come to the point to openly advocate the creationist need to rethink their biblical convictions due to evolutionary truth. So in conclusion to the whole lecture series, one of the greatest dangers that the visible church faces today is the growing threat of theistic evolution. I call it Pandora's theological box. Once opened, all sorts of terrible things begin to occur. One of the consistent things that I have read from those who advocate some form of evolution is that we live in an age where we just simply cannot ignore the findings of science. Once something is elevated to a position that is necessary for us to interpret the Bible correctly, then that thing eats up the scripture. Evolution becomes necessary as a lens through which we must revise our old ideas about creation. The earth cannot be around 6,000 years old because science says so. But the problem is not science per se. The problem is a particular view of science that has hijacked this realm of human knowledge. There are a sufficient number of equally educated scientists who contend that there is no conflict with the findings of science with a young earth view. We cannot ignore nor escape from our governing presuppositions, that is, our worldview. If we look at the so-called evidence from an evolutionary perspective, we draw conclusions favoring evolution. However, if we interpret the evidence using solely the lens of Scripture, then we can understand that the universe was indeed created in the space of six days. The heavens do declare the glory of God. God really and truly instantaneously spoke the vast heavenly host into existence by the word of his power. We can understand that man is not simply a highly evolved animal that God somehow refurbished with a soul. But man is the apex of God's creation. Adam is the creation of God by God's instantaneous act. Eve is the glorious creation of God by his instantaneous act. Man, male and female, is both a body-soul at the moment of their creation. We are special. As Psalm 8 so beautifully says, we were created a little lower than God. The fall of man was a tragic story of man listening to the great deceiver who called into question God's love and veracity. Jesus is the only true God-man who was sent from heaven to fallen humanity. He does not have his human ancestry traced to a lower form of life. How insulting to the Lord of glory to think such faithful thoughts. And those who would not twist scripture to conform to such disgraceful views of creation will have much to answer for before the judge. Jesus when he comes in his great glory.